You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. For unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. Good afternoon, Iron City fam. We left last week, the end of chapter 4, in our journey through this story of Esther. We left with a cliffhanger. Esther was about to go in before the king. She was about to put her life on the line for her people. We see so many parallels through this story, so many ironies and twists and turns. Chapter 1 began with Queen Vashti risking her life by refusing to go in before the king when he summoned her. But here we now have another queen, Queen Esther, who's risking her life by going before the king when she hasn't been summoned. Before she goes in, she calls for a three-day fast at the end of chapter four. Multiple commentators mentioned how there's this old Jewish midrash, this commentary on the book of Esther. It says this, the people of God are never left in dire distress for more than three days. In this old Jewish commentary written before Jesus even comes on the scene in the first century, points back to the story of Abraham and Isaac and Abraham's groaning agony for three days, thinking he's gonna have to sacrifice his son, point to Jonah being in the belly of the great fish for three days. But as Hosea 6 Two says, on the third day, he will restore us. Redemption comes for the people of God on the third day. Again, this ancient Jewish commentary written before Jesus came on the scene says this, redemption comes on the third day for the people of God. If you can't hear that preaching or pointed Jesus, then you ain't listening today. Redemption is coming here for the people of God on the third day. But as Esther begins to approach the, the king, I think it's also helpful for us to remember that Esther, even though she's putting on her royal robes as she's entering in, she's not coming in strength but weakness. Again, she has been fasting for three days. She's hungry. She's, she's dehydrated. She's weary. If you ever fasted before, she's know you've got that bad breath, no food breath, right? Coming in fasting before the king. She's coming here in weakness. And the king, when he sees her, beginning of chapter five, he's not just being moved to mercy by her beauty, but also by her weakness, by her vulnerability, by seeing her distress here. He's probably thinking, what in the world would move my queen to risking her life and coming into my presence under these conditions? And the answer to that question was that at the end of chapter four, Esther had an awakening. She was told that if she did not stand for her people, then her name and her father's name, household, would perish. I think we all probably can admit that it's not ideal to wait to have a spiritual awakening until your life is on the line, until it looks like you have nowhere else to turn. But the good news is that even when we turn to the Lord as our last resort, that our God is so gracious and merciful that he is there to welcome us in with open arms. So where we're planning on going 
to give you a heads up, next fall is planning on starting to go through the Gospel of Luke. So one of the things I often do before preaching through a book of the Bible is spend time reading through it a lot and devotionally journaling through it. And as I was reading through Luke, this time in preparation for that, just felt a few months ago, the Lord uh, compelling me to stop in Luke 15 and just spend every day reading through Luke 15. If you're not familiar with Luke 15, Luke 15 is a chapter that has these three parables that Jesus tells in it. One about parable of a lost sheep of the shepherd leaving the 99 to go and find this one and rejoicing when he brings back the sheep. It's a parable of a lost coin, losing a coin, searching all the house and rejoicing when she finds this coin. And then probably the most familiar of these parables is the parable of two sons, what we often call the parable of the prodigal son. Each of these stories showing the value of sinners, of returning of being found in the eyes of our God. And what we learn from the story of the prodigal is that even when you've run away from our father, when you begin to return home, that he comes running after us, that he is there to clothe us. He's there to put a signet ring on our finger, to throw a feast Again, if our God values you like that, if our God values sinners like that, these are things that must lead us to worship. Here, Esther is like a prodigal. She's had a moment of awakening. For the prodigal son, it came when he was working with the pigs and thinking about his father's household Here it comes for Esther as she is told that her father's household will perish if she doesn't change. Mordecai, who had told her to hide who she was all these years, he has now had an awakening and he has come to her and helping her to wake up to who she actually is. So just finish reading through a book series uh, by a guy named Andrew Peterson. Some children's fantasy stories. They're great for adults too, called the Wing Feather Saga. I'm not going to ruin the series for you, but a major theme in this series is remembering your name, remembering who you are. I think that's what's happening here for Esther. She has had an awakening. She's remembering her name. Again, it's not just Esther. She's not just Esther named after a Persian god, but her name is Hadassah, the name her father gave her, a name that identifies her with her father, but also with the people of God. And a question I have for you today is who are you? Who do you identify with first and foremost? Who has your loyalty? Who has your greatest allegiance? I think if we're honest, we like Esther are often tempted to forget who we are as those who claim to be followers of Jesus, to even deny who we are, to compromise with the culture around us the way that Esther and Mordecai had. But we see here, as soon as Esther identify herself with the people of God, she is choosing to die to her old identity and willing to die now with the people of God. 
we find as we read through the storyline of the Bible, it is through sacrificial death. Sacrificial death leads to a satisfying life. We don't live in a culture of self-denial, but of self-indulgence. We live in a culture that tells us if you have to deny yourself in any way, you're not being true to yourself and who you are. And hear me, brothers and sisters, that is a lie. The way to true joy, the way to true life is what we see in the scriptures. The way to true joy is to deny yourself for the good of others. That's what love is defined by the Bible. Self-sacrifice for the good of someone else. This is the way of Esther, and more importantly, this is the way of Jesus. Jesus, the one who denied himself in love, who came and literally served his people to death. But as a call to response to what Jesus has come, come and done for us, he says, if anyone wants to come after me, you also must deny yourself. As he took up his cross, you have to take up your cross daily, he says, in service to him. He says, if you want to gain your life, you have to lose it. If you want to be first in his kingdom, you have to be last and servant of all. This seems backwards and upside down to the world, but this is the way to true joy in this life and also in the next. We see here in the story, Esther denies herself. She comes into this throne room under the threat of death. But there in this throne room, she is also holding out hope for her life and the lives of her people. As she walks in, again, she's not been summoned by the king. So under normal circumstances, someone shows up in the king's throne room un unsummoned, they are immediately executed. This is the threat hanging over her head. But as she walks in, we see here in chapter five, the king's heart is moved to, towards mercy towards her. We see that she has the king's favor. He hasn't called her for over 30 days, over a month at this point. Maybe she's grown out of favor, but here we see his heart warm towards her again. We see sympathy in this moment. In verse two of chapter five, we see the king hold out the golden scepter, which means to spare her life and that she may approach. And the king asks in verse three, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to half of my kingdom. If you're familiar with the Bible, that, that isn't a foreign statement. We see in other places in the Bible, Herod uses this same statement. This is a seemingly common kingly idiom in the ancient world, not, I think, to be taken literally, but just saying, you have my favor. I'll do pretty much anything that you ask of me is what the king is saying here. And this had to bring great relief to Esther to hear these words from the king. But Esther says, I'm, I'm not gonna make my request right now, but my request of you right now, if I really have your favor, is that you'll come to this feast that I prepared for you and you'll bring Haman with you. So the king sends for Haman immediately, calls him to come with him to this feast that Esther has prepared. In chapter five or six, we see the scene change. We see that they are at this feast the king and Haman have been filled with food and wine. 
The king asks for a second time here in verse six, what is, it, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And here, once again, Esther says, if I really have your favor, come back to a second feast tomorrow night. And there, I promise I'll share with you my requests. So here, for the king, but also for the reader, the suspense is heightened of what is going to happen here. Verse nine, we see Haman leaves this feast, feeling really good about himself, feeling really high and mighty because he's the only one that's received this request to come to this feast and now has been received a request to come back to a second feast from the queen. Nothing can get Haman down at this point except for the one who's refused to bow down to Haman. And that's the very one that he encounters on his way home. Again, just by chance, he encounters Mordecai. And once again, Mordecai refuses to bow. This infuriates Haman. He decides to call his own party, a little pity party here. He calls all of his friends and family together. Instead of playing games, he recounts his greatness to them. Look at verses 11, starting verse 11 of chapter 5. And Haman recounted to them, again, to his friends and family, after he's really upset here, recounted them the splendor of his riches, the number of all of his sons, all the promotions which with the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above all the officials and servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow I am invited by her together with the king. And yet all of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So here, again, you want to be at a party like this? Guy invites all the people that he is close to in this party and just begins to recount how great he is. But he says, even all of these things are nothing to me as long as Mordecai is alive. Then Haman's wife tells him what he should do, which is another irony in this story after the edict in chapter one, if you remember that edict, his wife tells him to build these gallows for Mordecai. These 75 feet high gallows. And don't think gallows with a noose. This is actually gallows. It's a stake to impale someone upon. He's saying, make these gallows. She's saying, make these gallows. Kill, take out Mordecai. Then you can actually go and enjoy the feast tomorrow night. That's when the curtain closes on chapter five. Then chapter six begins. This text that Pastor Demetrius just read for us. Karen Job says that this is ironically, arguably the most comedic scene in the whole Bible, both in our sermon writing meeting and in community group this week, people pointed out this, this really reads like a Shakespearean play here. Chapter six, we begin to see these great reversals in the story take place. Chapter six opens the curtain to the scene is in the king's bedroom. The king can't sleep. He is experiencing insomnia, which as someone who's battled insomnia in the past few years can sympathize with the king here. And the king's sleepless night just seems like another coincidence, but it's actually another providence in the story. The providential hand of the Lord 
mysteriously working together things out for his own plans and purposes. I was reading this morning, my devotional time, Proverbs 21 begins this way. A king's heart is like a channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. In this story, it seems like the king should be the most powerful person in the story. Again, he's the king over 127 different provinces, over most of the known world. But it's clear he's not the most powerful person in the story. He can't even sleep when he wants to. The Lord's providential power is overriding the power of this pagan Persian king. But the king, like many who can't sleep, decides to read, but not to read himself, but to have one of his servants come and snuggle up next to him maybe and read him a bedtime story, but not a normal bedtime story. This is a story recounting all the great things the king has done in his reign. And as the servant is reading these things, he reads about this plot, this assassination plot that had been discovered five years earlier when Mordecai came and told the queen and it was reported in Mordecai's name and it was found out to be true. And the king turns to the servant and says, what was done for Mordecai to reward his loyalty? And the servant said, actually nothing. He didn't do anything to honor this man, Mordecai. And just as the king hears that he did nothing to honor this man who saved his life, it just so happens once again that old Haman walks in. Again, apparently Haman also couldn't sleep that night because of this murderous rage in his heart, this plotting and planning and even building these gallows to kill Mordecai. And so he's coming. He wanted to be the first person there in the morning to be able to greet the king and ask him if he can take out Mordecai. But even before Haman can open his mouth to ask, the king asks Haman a question. See in verse six of chapter six, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Verse seven gives us insight into what Haman's thinking. This is something he's saying to himself. He's saying, this has to be me, right? Who does the Lord desire, or who's the king desire to honor more than me? He thinks this is his chance to pick his own gift from the king and have the king or one of his servants wrap up this gift he gets to pick and bring it to him. So Haman tells the king what he desires to happen for himself. And he's got a bunch of money. We've already seen that. What else can he get? He wants signs of the king's power placed upon him. He says to get the king's royal robes and put it on this man you delight to honor. Get your crown and put it on his head. Get your horse, parade him around the city and have one of your top officials say, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And the king thinks Haman's plan is great. He says, go, hurry, do everything that you have said. Four, and there's probably supposed to be a dramatic pause here in the story. Go do all that. Don't leave any of that out. Go do it all for Mordecai, the Jew. This had to hit Haman like a ton of bricks here. It hit him so hard that he is never able to recover again in this story. Can you imagine the look on Haman's face when the king says this? To go and do all that you said to do, and do this for Mordecai, 
Mordecai. Haman had wanted, had hated him and wanted to hang him, but now he has to honor him. The king commanded Haman to go and do, be this top official that parades Mordecai around. And also, can you imagine what Haman sounds like making this proclamation? That thus shall be done to the man that the king delights to honor. Again, not only would this be half-hearted because they didn't want to be there, his heart is filled with hatred towards this man. He's having a parade all around the city with Mordecai proclaiming his greatness. Mordecai had refused to honor Haman, but here Haman is having to honor Mordecai. In another great twist of irony here. On the day that Haman had planned for Mordecai to be executed becomes the day of Mordecai's exaltation here. Again, if you're listening, if you know the storyline of the Bible, that'll preach as well and is pointing us somewhere else that we'll come back to. In chapter four, verse one, we saw Mordecai going throughout the city, crying, weeping, wailing because of the king's edict that Haman had written. But here we now see Haman under command of the king, going throughout the city and having to cry out about Mordecai's greatness. We see the Lord's providential hand at work. The very night that Haman is plotting how to murder Mordecai, the king is questioning how he can begin to honor Mordecai. I don't know why it is so humorous to me to watch people fall down. But this is one of the things that Facebook has learned about me. So don't spend a lot of time on Facebook. But when I do sign on, almost always near the top of my feed is some kind of compilation video of people falling down. And I don't know why, but I just can't look away. And uh, it's one of those things where I don't know why it's so funny to watch people fall, because we all do it, right? We all trip and fall down at times. But it's just funny to watch other people fall down. And here in chapter six, we see Haman trips up over his own pride and falls on his face. Again, there is no clearer or more comedic picture of pride comes before the fall than we have in Haman in all the scriptures. But I do want us to step back and not just laugh at Haman here. But again, maybe turn inward in some ways and ask some questions of ourselves. Because I doubt that pride was only a problem for Haman and not for any of us. Pride plagues us all, brothers and sisters. And pride's a serious thing when you read through the scriptures. Pride is an invitation for the God of the universe to oppose you, according to the Bible. The scriptures say this repeated refrain, God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Again, if you want the God of the universe to oppose you, give yourself over to pride. It's an irony that we all struggle with this, isn't it? Because we all hate to be around prideful people. We hate to be around people that are always trying to exalt themselves over us and others. 
But I think it's helpful for us to realize that, that pride is just being consumed with ourselves. And that can look like someone being full of themselves and thinking themselves better than everybody else and trying to let everybody else know that. But another more subtle form of pride, another more subtle form of being consumed with ourselves is often when we're consumed with looking at everyone else, loathing ourselves and seeing how everyone else is better than us. Pride can be so subtle because it can be anything that makes us consumed with ourselves. But C.S. Lewis defines pride or humility as self-forgetfulness. It's a good, even biblical definition of pride. We see in Philippians 2, we went through Philippians some months ago in the fall. And Jesus is the personification of both humility and love. Humility, the self-denial, self-forgetfulness. Love, again, according to the scriptures, is denying yourself for the good of others. This is who Jesus, our Savior, is. But Haman here is the antithesis of these things, right? Haman is willing to sacrifice others for the sake of his own pride. Jesus, in humility, is willing to sacrifice himself for the good and love of those around him, of his people. We see here Haman's fall trips over his own pride and falls on his face. In chapter six, verse 12, prideful Haman returns home, not in humility, but humiliated. He had to publicly honor the man he hated more than any other in the whole world. And here he turns to his friends and his family, especially his wife to console him. His wife who told him the plan and how to kill Mordecai basically tells him now you're screwed because of Mordecai. If this has happened to Mordecai the Jew, you're not gonna make it. He's gonna win this one in the end. Here, she, he turns to her for comfort, but she tells him this is not gonna go well. And as Haman is there sulking, we see two eunuchs show up and carry him away to Esther's second feast here. Maybe a pause right here in the story to bring out something I think is significant in the book of Esther is throughout Esther, we have these feasts taking place. The word for feast is used 20 times in the book of Esther. That's almost as many as it's used in the rest of the Old Testament. So this is a clear theme here. And again, if you know where the story is heading, it makes a lot of sense because there's going to be this feast, Purim, that is a two-day feast that's going to take place. It uh, begins to be celebrated to commemorate this story of Esther. And when I was planning to go through Esther in February, I did not know that Purim is actually in February. Purim is actually starts this Thursday and Fridays. This two-day Jewish feast is also often the biggest feast, the biggest party that's thrown in Judaism throughout the year. And throughout this story, we see that Esther begins and ends with a pair of feasts. And here at the climax of the book of Esther, we have two more feasts that are taking place. If, again, it wasn't a pandemic, if it wasn't for COVID, maybe we could have our community, gathers, community groups get together and celebrate 
uh, this this week, but we will be providentially hindered from such things. But we do see the Lord's providence and bring all these things together, these feasts that are putting this book together. In chapter seven, the scene opens with this second feast that Esther is putting on for the king and for Haman. Verse one begins like this of chapter seven. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. Sounds pretty tame, right? Just recounting, they're going into the second feast, but they have no idea what's awaiting them here at the second feast. I would imagine, the story doesn't tell us, I would imagine Esther probably didn't know why she needed to wait and have through a second feast. I think we maybe can assume that the Lord gave her some insight into this plan as she's fasting, preparing. But I, I doubt she knows all the reasons why. But it's pretty clear as we come into chapter seven, some things in the Lord's providential plan needed to take place in the last 24 hours to set the scene for what's about to take place here in the rest of chapter seven. Again, I want you to hear this. I need to be reminded of this today that we can trust the Lord, that he's at work behind the scenes, even when we don't understand what's going on on the stage. Even when we can't see him on the stage, even when he's not being spoken of on the stage, we can trust that he's at work behind the scenes, providentially working everything out for the good of his people. As they're here eating and drinking once again, at the second feast, the king turns to Esther and asks for a third time, what is your wish? What is your request? El Esther elegantly here uses the king's language of his question and says that her wish is for her life. Her request is for her people. She gives the reason for this in verse four, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. She's using the language of the king's edict that Haman himself wrote. It seems the king may be a little slow about what's actually going on here. Remember the king actually didn't write this decree Haman is the one who wrote it. Actually, the king never even asked who these people were when Haman originally came to him. He just agreed to it. So he seems to be blind to a lot of what's going on here, but Haman is probably about to bust. As she's hearing, he's hearing his edict quoted back to him. He already knows this is not his day, right? He probably sees where this is headed at this point. His own pagan wife has prophesied over him that this is not gonna end well for you. And he's seeing these things begin, the walls begin to close in on him here. Esther's first request is for her own life, which have probably confused the king to a great deal. He had no idea that she was a Jew. Again, she had hid this, hidden this. She had pretended to be a Persian this whole time. And here we see that she's coming and making herself known to the king pulling back the veil, letting him know who she really is. It was obviously wasn't a good thing to be a Jew in the Persian kingdom at this point. This is why Mordecai told her she needed to hide who she was. He changed her name, named her after, again, a, a pagan Persian god. She doesn't know how the king's gonna respond here. But we see in verse five, the king was not angry with Esther but instead he's outraged that anyone would, would seek to take the life of his queen and of her people. 
And he asks this question, who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this, the king asks. Esther is brilliantly setting the stage here. If you're familiar with 2 Samuel 12, a similar scene takes place. David has sinned against the Lord, sinned against Bathsheba, used his power to take her in. He's sinned against Uriah, had him killed. Then the prophet Nathan comes to David and tells him a story. Tells him a story about injustice that evokes King David's heart to say, who is this guy who's done this? And the prophet Nathan looks at David and says, you are the man who's done this. But in a similar way here, Esther has set up this brilliantly. But instead of pointing at the king saying, you are the man, she points at Haman and says, he is the man, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman, she says. And again, doesn't say her fingers pointed, but it, it's almost hard to read this without seeing Esther's finger pointed directly at Haman. Probably doesn't touch him, but the power of that pointed finger probably about knocks Haman out of his seat here. In verse six, Haman goes from this invited honored guest to public enemy number one. Haman is rightly terrified when this happens. The king in his fury storms out of the room. We don't know all that's going on in the king's head here, but it's obvious Haman realizes that the king in his fury, in his wrath is livid. He's on fire here and Haman's about to be toast if something doesn't change. Another insight that I've quoted Karen Jove in her commentary often has been so helpful through it. Another kind of background insight that she points out is that there was another royal edict that no man was to come within seven feet of anyone in the king's harem. So social distancing before it was cool. No, nobody's allowed to come within seven feet of any woman that's in the king's harem, except for a eunuch, which again, is kind of self-explanatory why that would be okay. But seven feet here, you're supposed to keep your distance from the queen and anyone else that is set to belong to the king. But the king shows back up here and sees Haman. It says, here on the couch with the queen. Here we see from the king's language, he's accusing Haman of assaulting Esther here. There's uh, a Aramaic kind of commentary story on Esther that suggests that the angel Gabriel actually pushes Haman on top of Esther as the king walk is, walks in here to seal his fate. Probably not true, but pretty funny, again, that that's uh, assumed here. Again, this is not Haman's day. Whatever's happening is probably not actually trying to assault her, but that's where the king's mind and accusation goes. And he gets no opportunity to explain himself here. Immediately, his face is covered, which means he's about to be executed. It's obvious that Haman didn't have a lot of sympathetic folks around him as prideful people normally don't because immediately a servant comes and tells the king, hey, Haman's actually built this 75 foot gallows to kill Mordecai on. Why don't we use that to kill Haman on? And that's exactly what happens. The king chooses to use 
Haman's own instrument of execution for Mordecai upon himself, upon Haman. And this is kind of the checkmate in the story, right? Of the Lord's providence here. We see all of this poetic, seemingly Shakespearean irony throughout the story, but really this is the mastered storyteller, the Lord himself using his providential pen writing this story. We see the Lord is working all the way back to chapter one in this story, eight years before this dinner on this night, he is moving the pieces providentially, setting up how this is going to end. Again, in our own stories, we often think that the Lord needs to act right now. I need to see you act right now, Lord. For me to actually believe you, believe in you, to trust you, I need some evidence that you are moving and working right now. But because he doesn't act in the way that we want him to right now, we can often assume that he is absent. But hear me, brothers and sisters, if you belong to him, he is never absent in your story. He is always working, he's always moving. If you trust him in the end, you can't lose. In one of the sweetest chapters in the Bible, Romans chapter eight, again, not only tells us that God's working all things together for the good of those who love him are called according to his purpose. But he also tells us that if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for you, who can be against you? And he's not just sovereign over the good, happy parts of our story. We can trust that even in the dark parts of our story that by his grace, he will make the light of his glory shine all the brighter in our lives. C.S. Lewis in his famous book, The Great Divorce, says this. This is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Again, when we enter into Jesus' kingdom, all of our tears will be wiped away. All the sadness in our lives will come untrue. And again, the sadness will lead to the sweetness of his grace, the sweetness of his kingdom being all the greater because what we experience in this life. Our God loves writing stories of great reversals. We see this in the story of Esther and we also see this in our own stories. No matter how hopeless things may seem right now, no matter how dark things may seem right now. There is always hope when you look to Jesus, who's the light of the world, when you trust him as the author of your story. Hear me, don't buy into the lie that this world is as it seems. This world often seems like it's the bad guys who are going to win and there's no hope for the people of God. Think about the context of the first Christians in the Roman Empire. Everywhere they looked, it looked like Caesar was winning. Maybe take that up a little. It looked like Caesar was actually Lord, that he was the real God who was in control. They saw Caesar's soldiers everywhere. They saw his emblem everywhere. They saw temples and statues erected to him and worship everywhere. And while the Christians, this little minority group, had to hide to have their worship services of Jesus. It looked like Rome was winning. It looked like Rome would overcome them. 
But now in the 21st century, who's scared of Rome anymore? Who's scared of Caesar anymore? He's dead, right? All of them died. They're not in power anymore. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Think about the Old Testament, all of these pagan gods and nations that Israel was afraid of. Nobody's afraid of Baal anymore. No one thinks that Baal is actually more powerful than Yahweh anymore. The Lord is always going to win in the end. Even in this life, he will prove his power. But on the final day, the kingdoms of this world will pass away, including America. And Jesus, the rightful king in his kingdom, will be the only one who stands. And I promise you, again, he is going to win in the end and you are going to want to be on his side in the end. In our text today, we see two people pleading for their lives. But it's this Jewish woman, the one with the least amount of social capital and power that is spared. And it's the one who has the king's signet ring and his power that is killed. The Lord loves to save and use the weak in order to display his grace and power in the world. This story is filled with great reversals. Again, Haman is so upset because this Jewish man won't bow down to him. But what leads to Haman's execution is he is bowed down, pleading for his life in front of this Jewish woman. Mordecai was honored with the plan that Haman proposed for himself. And now Haman is being executed on the very stake that he had prepared to murder Mordecai on. The story of grace, great reversals is the story of the gospel. Again, even think about this stake, this instrument of death, this thing that Haman thinks he's gonna carry out his wicked plan upon. Think about the cross, the very instrument that the enemy thinks that he is going to use to defeat the people of God is the means that our enemy is dealt a death blow. Paul quotes from the book of Deuteronomy in Galatians chapter three and says, cursed is everyone who is hanged upon a tree. Within Jewish custom, anyone that was hanged on a pole, on a tree was cursed by God. Haman is here cursed by God for his own sins. But Jesus, the sinless one, he willingly takes the curse of his people upon himself on the cross so that all who would look to him in faith upon that tree might be saved. We see all kinds of echoes of the gospel here. We see Esther entering into this throne room, a room that no one else could probably enter into and live. She invites the king's wrath upon herself in order to save her people. It's through her willingness to die that her people are saved. And brothers and sisters, it is in Jesus's willing death that we find our life. It's on the third day the redemption comes. On the third day is our resurrection story. Even in a world that's filled with certain death, we have the hope of life because of the third day. Because Jesus defeated the power of sin and death through his resurrection. And as we turn to the Lord's table, I want to also providentially remind us of where we are in the church calendar right now. We're in a season that is often called Lent. 
a time of self-denial, a time of fasting. We see Esther fast here. But Jesus also was a man who fasted. Jesus fasted so that he may give us a feast. Jesus denied himself so that he might give his people and bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Paul tells us. But in order to actually follow Jesus, it does come through not self-indulgence, but self-denial. Turning away from yourself and your sin and looking to Jesus and him alone. This is what we're all called to. This was what we must embrace. This is what this table reminds us of, that the cross does come before the crown. The groaning in this life does come before the glory. But the glory is coming, brothers and sisters. The great reversal is coming. No matter what it looks like, who's winning in this life, Jesus is going to win in the end. And this table is a meal where we remind ourselves of what he's done for us. A meal that Paul tells us that we celebrate together until Jesus comes back and wins in the end. So if you will, take the cup that's there before you. If you are one who is turning from your sins and trusting in Jesus, denying yourself to follow him, not meaning that you're sinless, but you agree about Jesus and his word about your sin and that you confess that to the Lord and you desire to forsake it and follow him and to know that no matter what you've done, you have hope because Jesus took your sin upon himself on the cross. So take the bread and reminder that Jesus, the bread of life, had his body broken to the point of death so that he might offer you eternal life. Again, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. Let's take and eat. This cup also reminds us of what Jesus, our great King, has done for us. Has come in humility, has come in love, has denied himself, has had his blood shed on the cross. His blood shed so that he might wash you and I clean of all of the ways we compromised, of all the ways we've been complicit like Esther and Mordecai. Jesus cleanses us through his blood, washes us, so that we might enter into his presence. This is what our king has done in shedding his blood. Let's take and drink, remember that together. Father, we ask that you would give us grace and not just to hear this word, but to do it, to turn from ourselves and our sin, to turn from our pride, and look to our humble savior, our humble king, who has served us to death so that he might grant us eternal life. Father, I pray that you would help us to see the value of knowing Jesus and compare with everything else in this life. I pray that we would see Jesus as greater and more valuable and be willing to give up everything in order to have him. I pray that you would help all of us to have an awakening again today to who we are in Jesus, the inheritance we have promised, that we'd really believe that 
with you on our side, what can any mere man do to us? May the knowledge of who we are and what Jesus has done for us transform everything about us. Pray you give us grace to respond now to your word in a spirit of worship through song. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.